0: Welcome to Lightning in a Bottle, a podcast that addresses the needs of business owners before, during, and after they sell their company. As a business owner, you owe it to yourself, your family, and your employees to know your options, to be informed, and to plan early. We hope you enjoy this program. And if you have any questions, feel free to drop us a line by visiting our team's website at www.UBS.com forward slash ATX. This is your host, Josh Pottinger, and joining me is my longtime business partner, Jason Georgianis, and together we run ATX Wealth Partners, a private wealth management team here focused on being a trusted resource for business owners, entrepreneurs, and the professional advisors that surround them. Okay. Joining us today is Oliver Henderson, Managing Director and Head of our Private Markets One Bank Coverage Team here at UBS. And the topic for today is we're going to be talking through the various ways of how an owner can begin to think through monetizing their ownership position in their company. And so Ollie, thank you for, for joining us and tell us a little bit about yourself and about our Private Markets One Bank.
1: Well, oh, thank you, Josh and Jason, for having me today. And it's nice to meet everyone. Once again, my name is Oliver, or often people call me Ollie Henderson. I've been with UBS for 17 years working in a host of areas within our investment banking division within our equity sales and trading division for about three years spent three years within equity capital markets, so really helping companies go public and monetize their business endeavors through the public equity markets, and then joining the role that I'm currently in for the past 11 years, helping bridge the gap between our wealth management relationships and our investment banking solutions. It's been a great opportunity to spend time with numerous business owners and help them think through, I think, some of the more complex situations of how they monetize their life's work and their endeavors with their business interests. So my team spends 90% plus of our time speaking with business owners, trying to understand their business, and then from there really determine are they seeking liquidity in their business for them or their families, or are they just looking to find outside capital investments or partners to help them grow their business. So that's where we spend a lot of our time. It's always humbling especially to hear how people have built their businesses whether through multi generations of, you know, their family or some instances where it's been a high growth, fast moving, entrepreneurial type endeavor that has resulted in them having a very successful and viable business.
2: Holly, good morning. It's Jason. How are you?
1: Good, Jason. How you been these days?
2: Doing all right. Thanks so much. Uh, let's expand on that for a second. You know, As head of the private markets, one bank coverage team, obviously you're working with our team. Our clients have certainly benefited from your services and your team services. You're working with UBS financial advisors at large and with all of our, our business owner clients to understand their strategic options With our investment bank internally, as well as the network of boutique investment banks with whom we're collaborating. I think we're, it was maybe 30 mid market bankers we're collaborating with now currently. Is that right? Well, correct.
1: We're right around 20 middle market investment banking firms that we leverage when there may be clients seeking solutions Mm -hmm. outside of the size, scope, or expertise of UBS's global investment bank.
2: Okay, so can you walk our listeners through the various ways that our clients do oftentimes opt to monetize their, their ownership position and how you seek to, when it comes to our mid-market collaboration specifically, how you seek to pair up the right match, if you will?
1: Sure. So I think one, one interesting dynamic is a lot of conversations that we have with our wealth management clients and relationships is they often come into the question around monetizing their business endeavors with preconceived notions. Some have been from past experiences and expertise. They may have been with other companies or they had other interactions in the past of monetizing their business. While other people just have read something in the newspaper, there's been a landmark IPO or company sale, and they know that their business is very similar and should have a similar valuation. Really, it walks, you know, it spans the whole stretch of that continuum. Quite often, when we deal with wealth management relationships, it's really understanding from the beginning what is their experience, how have they come to this determination, or they may have not come to a determination that they want to monetize their business. What we try to do is educate them based on their situation, who owns a business, what is a full suite of options, you know, at their disposal to monetize the business? And quite often that really depends on how long and how much they want to be involved in the business on a go-for basis. Recently met a family where the father of the family said, I've this is my lifeblood. I never want to retire. So want to keep on running and being involved in the business. In that situation, we know that selling out to a private equity firm or someone that's going to have him out of the business within two to three years is not the right solution. So we try to find, are there other alternatives of who they can bring on as investors in the business so he can continue to drive and excel and build on the legacy of the business and have it perform and grow and be even better in the future. Other individuals may say they want to go public. And we've been very involved in conversations around going public, where usually in the past, you would only have an option to do your own IPO. A topic that's come up very frequently is special purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs, as another alternative to becoming a public company. So basically, really what you need to do is you sit down, and we spend time with the individual or family or entrepreneur and try to understand what's driving this interest and monetizing the business. From there, what is their perspective, whether they want to remain involved in the business or they, they want to depart the business and enjoy their endeavors and diversify their wealth into other investments. Once you start going down that path, you start to determine Within the continuum, is it going public? Is it staying private and taking on investors? And that could be within with equity investors or taking on debt. Or are they looking at potentially selling the business? And that selling of the business could be to a strategic, which is basically another company in that area of the business that wants to acquire them or it could be selling to private equity or financial sponsors. And each of those investors and each of those different solutions carry different benefits and considerations and outcomes on each of those situations.
2: Ali, in regard to the the family business that you referenced, Patriarch in particular, is that in progress at the moment or, or is there an outcome to that?
1: That is currently in progress, but you know that being said, each year we close numerous transactions on behalf of families. Over the last year, I've had one outcome where is an individual that is he had built the business more as an entrepreneur, helped to monetize it. We we're able to help get to him two and a half times of what he was initially offered. By a private equity firm. We've also had an instance where, you know, recently closed where an individual, it's been in their family, the business has been in their family for 45 years, and we've just helped them monetize one division of the business as they continue to gain liquidity and diversify their holdings.
2: You know, when you when you reference that that example of helping the owners reap two and a half X of an offer that was on the table. It's very much in line with one of our clients who you also helped in a separate situation. A client was negotiating a very hush-hush deal, didn't let any of his advisors know about it, and negotiating with a strategic, so obviously like-minded and knows the space very well. Why do I need any help? And Long story short, I think it was either 14 or $16 million was offered for this family-owned business. Things went south. For whatever reason, which gave us an opportunity to introduce him to your team and the network. And within a year, he exited for forty two million. same business. same fundamentals within that year. It was just a point of it's worthwhile exploring your options in the fall.
1: and then looking, I think that's a thing that I've found. there's there's many great, decent individuals running honest businesses. And quite often when they come into a situation, especially if it's another strategic company in the sector, and more often than not, it's a larger company that's looking to acquire them, they view that things should be done on a handshake and not involve other parties that may be outside influences to create problems or slow down the process. And I think that's just you know, you know, a lot of people, the way they think. The, my point to them is, if you're going to have a very significant event in your life, whether it's a major surgery, whether it's buying some, your, your house, rarely do people do that solely on their own unless they've done it before. And I think that's where it helps to gain advice because you have to know what is the market? What are the parallels and dynamics that you should be aware of? Because quite often, this is a very large decision that you're unlikely to go through many times over down the road. And that's where at UBS, and I think the value of your team helping on the planning side, along with someone that understands the financial aspects of selling a business. It's getting that type of expertise and advice helps them make the right decisions. And especially if it's a larger company or a private equity firm that's soliciting interest in that business owner, you really do want to make sure that you're having the right advice because more often than not, They may not be showing it to that business owner, but they likely have their own stable of bankers, lawyers, and other people advising them. And it's just making sure that you don't go into a very significant life event and decision without the proper
0: advice. Yeah, I mean that is, that is so true, so true. I mean, you brought up the analogy of selling a house. It's one thing that we talk to people about is when you you know when you put your house up for sale, do you, do you want one person knocking on the door, or do you want a line around the corner? And so, the idea of of, of having some advisors around you and trying to create that competitive tension in the marketplace is, is what you really want. You know, when we're, whenever we're taking these owners through the, the planning process, you know, one of the first things we do is get a, get an idea of what the balance sheet looks like. And their ownership interest in their company is, is in more cases than not, is their largest line item. And so, you know, when you're going up against a a professional M&A team that's done Tens or dozens, if not hundreds, of these deals, you're you're at a significant advantage by going at it alone. So, curious to hear your thoughts, Ollie, on uh, around when the process. How often does the process start to break down? Let's say somebody's made the decision. You know, look, you know, I'm I'm up for selling, or looking for a potential buyer or an investor. How often does it start to break down, or you know, things fall through? And maybe what are the specific things that you you usually see, and maybe some advice to to business owners out there on how to mitigate some of the more common mistakes?
1: At the end of the day, it comes down to the preparation and the work that you put into potentially monetizing the business. When I speak with business owners, it's a very different proposition running a successful business versus selling, successfully selling a business or monetizing a stake in the business. You can run a phenomenally successful business but not have a lot of your legal items in order, whether it's contracts, whether it's documentation with the key executives in the company, and what are their responsibilities of the company. Or on the financial side, you don't have to have audited financials. You don't have a quali- you don't need a quality of earnings to run a successful business. But if you are going to run a competitive process where you are seeking professional investors and those professional investors could be once again private equity family offices or even going out and looking to monetize with a strategic company in the sector you need to make sure that your legal house is in order your financial house is in order everything is in order for you to run that process similar to you know going back to the home analogy i think because that's something everybody can identify with it's preparing that property that business for a sale making it as attractive as possible to potential buyers suitors investors partners who whomever it is you need to prepare the company so as you show it to companies or to various investors You have the best foot forward of putting it in the best light and context, also saying the proper things to elicit the proper interest, and also importantly, especially for private companies, doing it in a manner that does not jeopardize the ongoing business. And what I mean by that is quite often there may be some companies that you can say you can put out the for sale sign on the front lawn. And say we're open for any and all bidders, and that's fine, and, and we want to run a very wide process. Other companies, and many companies that I've dealt with, because of the contracts and the relationships that they have with specific clients or different people that participate in the company success, or with key employees, you have to run a much more confidential process. And it has to be more strategic. And you don't want the news getting out that the company is exploring its options for monetization because it may jeopardize specific clients, may open them to additional competition from other companies in a similar sector, or may put at risk some of your key employees that are really critical to the success of that company. So each process is a bit different. And it's really kind of helping that individual determine what process is best for them, best on their situation, and how to have them fully prepared when they start a process. And just succinctly, what typically hurts most deals, one of the biggest killers to a deal is time. And what I mean by that is the longer the process takes, the more opportunities there are for external influences to slow down, kill the deal, or have the deal be renegotiated. And it's just something that you know I always tell people, if you're going to run a process, be as prepared as possible. So once you actually start that process, the time from start to closing and consummation of that transaction is as fast as possible to minimize any external risk.
2: I mean, obviously there are several ways one can exit, but if we were to bunch it all together in three large overarching methods, let's call it bucket one being sale to employees slash family, bucket two being sale to a third party, whether it be a strategic or a financial buyer, and bucket three being filing an S one and going public. When you look at the that bell curve, is there one of those outcomes that's most prevalent in your work with these business owners? And sure. then who, which would be number two and number three?
1: Yeah, look, I think traditional days IPO was the the, the smallest, and it was just there not you know limited number of people or companies really wanted to go public and were also large enough and organized enough to access the public markets. That's changed a little bit because of the evolution of special purpose acquisition companies or SPACs. That's allowed more people in companies that typically would not have gone through a full-blown IPO process or initial public offering process. They've allowed them to become public you know, through that avenue. That being said, IPOs, I think, is still kind of the the smallest bucket. It's just, it's a very small population of people that want to go public. And there's just a a significant number of requirements to make that happen. I would say within that, when you have the remaining options of an equity or employee stock ownership program, or ESOPs, or a sale of the company, ESOP is uh, a very interesting option. It's probably a little bit less so than a regular way sale. And the reason for that is, you know, an ESOP where basically you take the company and instead of selling to a strategic or a financial buyer, once again, a private equity firm or family office, you end up selling the company to your employees. That's a little bit smaller area, one, because not all companies are set up for that type of process. And two, it's also a smaller group of owners that say, I really like the advantageous tax treatment of an ESOP, and I want to sell to my employees and effectively give the company to the employees via the company's earnings over a couple years. Also, if an owner is going to sell to an ESOP, typically they really need to want to run the business for another five to six years minimum to affect that sale of the company to their employees. The sale option, I think, would be number one. And the reason for that is you just have the widest number of options through a sale process. You can sell to another company, a strategic, you can sell to a private equity firm, you can sell to a family office that may be invested in companies. So there's a significant number of options there. And also in a sale process, you have many different derivatives of that where you can end up selling a portion of the business and still keeping a stake and staying in the business and getting a second bite at the apple, you know, through another sale down the road, or you can sell 100% of the business more often to a strategic.
0: Oh, that's great. Thanks for walking us through that. That's very insightful. I think will be helpful for some of our listeners. You know, Ollie. I guess, you know, one thing that we, we should probably bring up since we're in the middle of it, which is the pandemic and COVID. And, you know, as we think about more about the future for our business owners that are, you know, in some cases struggling right now, perhaps we can start with what's kind of happening in the world of potential buyers just as a re- as a result of what we're, the environment that we're in. And how have the buyers been reacting to all this? Is there, and, and a follow-up to that question is, is, is there a difference between how a strategic would look at it? versus a private equity or venture capital, you know, or you know, a professional investor would look at it?
1: Sure. Look, I mean, the, the pandemic has definitely had a significant impact in the current M&A market. And so we've really seen companies have to demonstrate a resilient business model through the pandemic to still be able to have a very successful offering in the current environment that we're in. Private equity firms and strategics have continued to have significant interest in companies, especially given the dislocation. They've determined that there's an opportunity to go out and continue to acquire companies in this environment, albeit being much more selective. Private equity firms have a significant amount of money or dry powder on the sidelines that they have to go out and acquire companies. So their interest has increased even more because if you think about it, earlier on in 2020, there was a pause in a lot of the deals. And so they still need to deploy that capital. So the interest there is very significant. Strategics are also looking to optimize and strengthen a lot of their operations during the pandemic. So this has caused them to also be very active going out and looking for acquisitions. It has changed. Because companies that have not been able to perform during the pandemic, they are going to be much more under a microscope for future transactions as people now believe what happened could happen again in the future. So you're really seeing companies stress tested based on that and potentially taking a more significant hit to the valuation that they would receive for their business if they do not perform well in this environment. Companies that have performed, once again, are getting a premium because just a much smaller group that have been able to show resilience, and some of them actually excel in the, in the current environment.
2: Ali, along those lines, there are companies that are clearly, ironically enough, that are flourishing in this environment where their businesses have grown year over year, maybe even because of COVID specifically. I'm thinking, you know, here in Austin we have a somewhat strong CPG space, consumer package goods space. And when you look at the commentary from groceries and retailers and so forth, and you look at the sale of this product, of that that product, it re- has really taken off year over year. And I'm wondering to what extent that year-over-year sales growth is being taken into consideration as a new baseline or where they're getting paid a multiple on those increased sales or is it being looked at upon the, looked at upon the buyer as, well, this is COVID-specific, that is why you had the bump up and we are, we're going to discount that growth rate, that COVID-related growth rate a little bit as we determine what we believe is a fair valuation for you. That
1: was yeah,
2: I mean, a bit look, yeah, all good. All over the place, but I think you got the gist of what <laughs> I was asking.
1: <laughs> now look, I mean, it's an interesting question, and it's a dynamic that I'm seeing firsthand. You look at online education or education technology. Exactly. Th- those are trends that are that are not going away. I've dealt over the last six months. We had a online food delivery company. And even in those conversations, everyone admitted the explosive growth that they've had over the last year is not sustainable. And it really just comes down to each company of okay, what are are these longer term trends? Are these a bit of an aberration that it was a blip? It was nice, but you know that. This is just not sustainable. You know, 300% growth in their business is not going to be 300% growth again and again. At the end of the day, investors are cognizant of that. They're realistic. People will try to pitch them, you know, on why this is sustainable and why it's going to continue on forever, but people see through that. And that's once again, I think where it comes into having the right advisor. And when we speak with clients, it's creating the story of what is sustainable. How is that attractive to potential acquirers or partners, investing partners, in what aspects of that business present continued growth opportunities and upside for an investor or an acquirer? I think that's quite often Something that a number of business owners believe that is a little bit off kilter is they say, I'm going to run the business, I'm going to get every bit of growth and make it as big as profitable as possible, and then sell the company so I can get the highest valuation. And often you have to speak to somebody saying, actually, you don't want to get it to the end of the race where you've expended everything, you're the biggest, fastest, best, and then sell it because investors or acquirers won't give you the highest valuation at that point. They'll actually give you the highest valuation three quarters of the way through the race where you're performing pretty well. You're at the head of the pack versus your other peers, but they think they can run that last quarter of the race faster, better, and more efficient. And that presents the upside to them acquiring or investing in the business. So you really want to be kind of three quarters of the way through the race with a lot of upside in the ability to go out and run down, run the super triathlon, whatever other race is the opportunity for that investor to come in. And that's part of the art of the deal is making them believe that we're doing really good in this one race, but oh, by the way, there's 10 other races that we can run out there. And as a combined entity, we're really going to make you the best person in that race. And that's really kind of the psyche that you have to have, I think, to have a successful sale and transaction and invite the best partners or acquirers.
0: Very well said. Nice, nice, good stuff, Ollie. Thank you. It's just to kind of let's let's kind of tie all this up in a nice bow how How would you bring these terms all together in terms of what a business owner and their financial advisor should be considering and working on now if they're thinking an exit maybe in the cards over the next call it twelve to thirty six months?
1: Sure, look, I mean. I always tell business owners, at the end of the day, the planning on the personal side has to be the bedrock of where you start. And the reason for that is that planning will quite often give you a time frame and a realization of if you were going to entertain a process, what do you need to get out of that process to make it beneficial to you? Because at the end of the day, whether you raise capital, whether you you know monetize a portion of the business through selling it, it is a process. There is a lot of additional work, stress, other trying aspects on top of running the business day to day that that owner will endure. The easy thing is to go through the planning on the individual side and the family side to understand. Okay, well, what is it that would make that worthwhile? And oh, by the way, what is the best time frame? based on your personal situation to go through that process in addition to running the business. Once you know that, that's where I think it becomes a more impactful conversation with someone on the corporate finance side. Because then they can say, based on where the markets are in the next 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, whatever it may be, here are the things that you need to start thinking about to prepare the business. And what are the steps And if you did it today, what type of outcome could you potentially expect for the business? And I I say, you know, we're always happy to have those conversations with companies that are operating profitable businesses, because those are conversations that are very productive. And in a half an hour's time frame, we can give that owner a good sense of where the markets are how their sector is, what are competitors doing, and what it, what would a process look like for their individual situation for, the, for their company. When you marry that together, based on what is the potential outcome of the monetization, the size and scope, with the right planning on the individual side, I find that a business owner is in much better position to come to a very thoughtful decision And whether now is the right time or should they wait another two years, three years. And honestly, some companies I meet with and talk to, I tell them there's no reason to go put yourself through a process. You're running a great business the family continues to be interested in it. It's a great legacy within the community and it's providing every amount of liquidity and wealth that you need to keep your family safe and healthy and take care of your employees, continue to run it. And when there is a time period that changes, whether it's personal health within the community, whatever it is, then, then we're happy to discuss and get you to the right spot. That being said, I would say for your clients, if it's an operating profitable business, our team is always happy to have those conversations to help guide our wealth management relationships on what are their potential options and solutions.
0: Right. yeah, excellent. You know, i I, I think with our team and and our focus on on this segment, helping them, create a solid plan, financial plan for themselves and their family just to identify whether or not an exit makes sense and how that could potentially affect their family and their probabilities of success is so important. You know, obviously knowing what the value is of the company is important. And I'm, I'm shocked to see some of the statistics out there at how many companies don't even know what the true value is of the company. And then lastly is some... Mechanism or some way for an owner to figure out whether or not the business is ready, if they're ready personally, and if the business is is an attractive entity for a potential acquirer. And you know some of the things we've we've got some some new tools available to us to help answer these important questions and create a very robust and thoughtful exit plan for these business owners. And ollie, so, I, I, you and your team are are so critical. And our team's success because it's just a great resource and resource and your willingness to hop on a call and visit with these owners is is, is very much appreciated. So yeah, you know, I just wanted to just close it out and just thank you for your time today. Ollie, it was it was very insightful. You're very generous with your time and 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 we thank you for that. So
1: thanks very much, Ollie. Josh and Jason, it's always a pleasure and look forward to future conversations.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. Well, this is Josh Pottinger and Jason Chirogianis. And remember this, know your options, be informed, and plan early. Until next time, take care.